Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 33, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, uh, today you you are going to hear from the Becky Nader a little bit later when the two of us chew on a conversation I'm right about to have with Lena Abujamra. And she'll tell me in just a moment whether I slaughtered her last name or <laughs> said it correctly. But she is a one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. She's a pediatric ER doctor. She's an author of three books. She founded a ministry called Living Power. She hosts a short segment on the Moody, Moody Radio Network called Today's Single Christian. She has her own wildly popular podcast, and... She's also one of the contributors to the Jesus-Centered Bible. She wrote some of the intro essays to the Jesus-Centered Bible, and she and I are both a part of the Simply Jesus Gathering. You might be wondering, well, what does Lena do with all of the obvious margins she has left in her life? <laughs> well, she also travels uh, internationally and often back to her birthplace, which is Lebanon. Throughout the year, she's back there taking care of Syrian refugees. So... Um, just with that little thumbnail, you can tell this is going to be an interesting conversation. We are finishing up a month-long focus on relationships, and I thought Lena would give us a powerful perspective on what it means to follow Jesus outside of the context of marriage and family in, in one respect. But really what we want to get into is our identity and where does the root of our identity come from, because... These contexts of relationships that we're in, are you married or single? Do you have kids or no kids? These things have this subtly powerful forming influence in us, and we want to talk about what does it mean to be formed by Jesus in our identity, even though we're surrounded by these powerful forming influences in our relationships. So, you know, Paul said that he preferred to be single, um, famously, and most of us sort of read that and find that hard to believe, <laughs> generally speaking. Uh, so uh, Lena has has done a lot of thinking and a lot of living in this arena. So welcome, Lena, and uh, we'd love for you to give us kind of the, the two-minute version of your story, if that's even possible. Jeez, Louise, <laughs> famous first words of a podcast. Jeez, <laughs> <Louise>. <laughs> first of all, congratulations. You said my name amazingly well. Very frustrating. I know. And, you know, look, um, you, you gave a lot of info. I was a little overwhelmed by but all that I'm doing, even hearing you tell about it. But the long and short of it is that um, because I'm single, I'm able to do a whole lot. And I was sort of brought up with this multitasking, very disciplined way. I'm Lebanese. We moved to the U.S. when I was 15, to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so I sort of understand um, adjusting quickly to a variety of different, you know, settings. And, and um, of course, that brings, you know, I brought a lot of cultural baggage with me with the move. Uh, even being single is interesting as a Lebanese-American. But, yeah, we moved when I was 15 and basically um, had met Jesus back when I was in Lebanon. My mother actually introduced me to the Lord. And um, she has a cool story, actually. I always think her story is a little cooler than mine. She was, um, they, her family was a Palestinian refugees 
from uh, Haifa. Actually, they lived in Jerusalem, and they left in 1948. With the, you know, the, all that was happening back then, went eventually landed in Lebanon after a brief stint in Jordan. And so she came to the Lord as a college kid, just really in in her own searching, and became very, you know, student of the Bible, a follower of Jesus to the nth degree, and 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 sort of, you know, distanced from her her family, distanced from her a little bit because of her uh, decision to follow Jesus. And so we grew up in a sort of very uh, Judeo-Christian background, and an American couple led the church, and, and uh, a lot of missionaries were in Beirut. Still a very open country for missions. And uh, so my salvation story was sort of very basic. But when I was in high school, when we moved to, to the U.S., I went to camp. And I always like to, you know, think of that at the beginning of my adult walk with the Lord, a coming of age, where I really gave my life to Jesus in every way and sort of understood that he wanted more than just, you know, okay, Yes to Jesus, you're going to heaven. That he wanted every part of our life. That that following him meant really giving up everything for him. And I think I understood that at 16. And my life has really just been a result of that decision at 16 of saying, God, my life is not my own; it's yours. Whatever you want, I will do. And everything that I've done really has been a, out of that rootedness of identity in Christ. One of the things that you've written and talked about quite a bit is this aspect of your life that you have remained single and. Um, most people, including you, um, have had a desire to not be single, and and yeah. yet and yet and yet you're left with this life situation that is, in some respects, inexplicable. Um, yeah. Why why am I still in this place that I don't want to be? I want to be in that place, and it opens up all kinds of questions about um, our identity, who, uh, what Jesus is doing in our life. Why is there something that means a great deal to us that has been kept from us in some ways? But I thought it would be interesting to to talk to you about uh, this aspect of your life, your singleness, and how that yeah. has been both a help and a hindrance in your relationship yeah. with Jesus and with other people. Yeah, no, I think that's... Uh, uh, at the end of the day, you see yourself, there's a lot of lenses to who we are, and you have to choose to see yourself in the truth of who God's says you are. But the reality is here on this earth, in the cultural context of the way that we live, uh, yeah, it's a glaring, obvious, you know, element of my life that I never married. And um, and I'm not gay. And I think there was, it's funny, because I grew up back, I was born in the 70s, and I, I, I um, remember when, I mean, right now, you know, people always, you know, it's still talked about whether you're gay or straight in the context of that. And, some, you know, some people might wonder, you know, where one falls if you haven't married. But but back, I remember in the, in the 90s, I had broken off, and I guess it was in the 90s, I was broke, I had broken off an engagement, and I went to get my nails done, and my mom had taken me with her in Wisconsin. And the lady who was doing my nails really assumed I was a lesbian. She actually asked me. And back in that day, it was sort of kind of uh, bold to ask that. And, uh, but there, it's, it's it's a glaring thing, you know, that you didn't. We were engaged once, and for me, I actually got engaged again ten years later, and both times uh, it didn't work out. And um, I tell my story, of course, in my book Thrive, which I wrote about singleness, not by by intent. I mean, I, it sort of felt in my lap, in a sense, God had preordained, if you want to use that word. And I'm not trying to create a theological discussion now about how God moves, but I really think in my case he had he had created a story in my life that I never thought would be used as the primary impetus of ministry, and yet it has become sort of that that element that uh, people talk about it. So I wrote a book because I was asked to write a book on singleness. And so now people kind of think of me as, oh, she's the today single Christian girl. So a lot of people assume I'm never going to marry because I have this persona of singleness. But, you know, I, I, I don't wake up in the morning and think of Lena as single. 
I really don't. I mean, yet, yet, I struggle at times with single issues like loneliness, like um, the physical desire to be with someone. I mean, and I, I've written about these things and I've, I've talked about them because I think they're real. And so, uh, and as a Christian in the church, I think there's been a huge tension of how a single person fits in. And how do you make relationships? And I think it's gone even harder as I've aged in some ways, this integration within the church culture and and really even the world as a single person. I think you become more comfortable with your singleness internally, but it becomes harder to sort of navigate it as a human, you know, rubbing shoulders with other people. You become a little bit more isolated, I think, in some ways. Uh, and so vertically, when you think about, well, what about God and all this? Yeah, there's a sense of wrestling with, God, you could have changed this in my life. You're able to do all things, and why aren't you still not changing it? I read an article in the Times recently of the 94-year-old woman or man who married the 98-year-old woman. And I was like, dude, God, you don't have to wait that long. You can bring it, you know, you just kind of laugh about it. But um, that, those are just, yeah, I think those are tough things, and, and there are seasons in my life where I've wrestled with them more heavily than others. So yeah. so the wrestling happens, and you know how it is. You, you, you wrestle in stages with the Lord. And um, and you mentioned something. And, you mentioned something just now, Lena, that I think is 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 kind of uh, the the rabbit hole I'd like to go down. And that is, you you talked about sort of being sort of boundaried by this one aspect of your life. Uh, even being asked to write a book about it kind of forced you to identify yourself in a kind of an obvious way by your yeah. singleness, and uh, whether it's singleness, or whether it's because you're a man or a woman, you're elderly or young, you're from America or someplace else, all of these things are like primary identifiers for who we are, and it can feel like uh, the same feelings you had about being sort of narrowly defined by an aspect of your life, that we also, in many different ways, get narrowly defined by an, one aspect in our life, and it's almost impossible to not find our identity in sort of the outside circumstances of our life and our influences. And I, I think yeah. it's it's true that we are actually created to find identity outside of ourselves. God created us to find out about who we really are outside of ourselves, which is a dangerous proposition, actually, when you're being herded into one kind of narrow identity. So in in what ways have you kind of struggled with this reality in your life of who is Lena, um, and how do you find out who Lena is? Well, and for me, it's there's so many layers to that, because people, yes, they want to—it's easy to, to want to try to understand people. And so, you know, they look at me and think, oh, she's a doctor, but then I have this calling in ministry— and so there's a confusion there. And then there's a the single thing, which you're right. Now you take on this ministry role. And, and so I think sometimes it's harder to explain your identity to other people than it is to really, like, I think it's more settled vertically. I'm going to use the words vertical and horizontal because I think there's two elements to our life. There's this vertical thing that happens with the Lord. And so for me, the wrestling of identity with God has been, in some ways, less so. So I go back to First Peter chapter 2 over and over again, which is really what Peter talks about. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And so you kind of think about the fact that we were sinners and now we're saved. And so I always have seen, I think God has given me a gift of being able to see myself primarily as a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But inevitably, so, I, so, so here's a 
real situation. I speak a lot at different places. And the hardest thing in the world I find when I go to speak, I, I feel the tension of it, is when whoever's invited me to speak gets up to introduce me. And it's like they don't know how to summarize it. They're like, well, she's a doctor, but she's a Bible teacher. But, oh, but she's single. Because why? Because everyone understands the single half. And how do you break out of that boundary of being seen as that person? You know, so, you know, people already, you say you're Lebanese, people make mental images of what that looks like. You say you're single, people make, you know, sort of down, like you go down a path of what that looks like. And I think it takes a huge element of trust in the Lord to settle into knowing your identity in him and not letting what people think affect sort of your mood and your future like it's a danger so I, i'll get caught in this like oh i have a radio show called today single christian and so now i think everyone in the world knows me as the single person so i'm never going to get opportunities to do married people things or <laughs> go speak at woman stuff right or whatever it is because oh they're going to think i only do single stuff now it takes an immense amount of god's faithfulness and god's leading and god's plan for our life to say it doesn't really matter what they think it's it's the Lord who's leading my life, and he's the one who, who's going to make those invitations or those opportunities open to me so that I'm not pigeonholed. I think that's it, is to be able to free yourself up from the pigeonholes. To, I think the only way to do that is to settle back into who you are in Christ, and that takes work and intentionality with the Lord. I think we think it's going to be magical. I wake up in the morning and feel like whatever I'm supposed to feel. Well, we, we, we've, we've heard this kind of phrase, if you've grown up in the Church, you've heard the phrase you just said often, who are we in Christ? It's kind yeah. of, it's kind of now, it, we've heard it so it's much that it's, it's yep. jargony, and, it's, and I'm not sure that, that it, it's one of those phrases where we say, yeah, yeah, that's right, oh, but what does that mean, does and mean? How, how do I actually settle into my identity in Christ? I know that you have talked before about that a key for you is is getting to the end of yourself, and yeah. and even that is like a what does that mean? So to, maybe you can talk a little bit about yeah. what how do you settle into your identity in Jesus, and what does it mean to get to the end of yourself, and what why does that matter right. for us living more intimately with Jesus and with others? Yeah, I wish I mean I mentioned a second ago, and I'll go back to that and just to answer your question. I mean. I wish things happened magically in the Christian life. I really do. And and some people, to hear some Christians talk, it's like, bam, you're a Christian, all of a sudden you have victory over all kinds of sins that you wrestle with, and, you know, you're a new creation, You now you think, you know, you hear about the alcoholics who get saved who never struggle with alcohol again. But that's not my story, and that's honestly, many people who are listening to this, probably that's not their story either, because I think that there is something to be said about wrestling and getting to the end of yourself to really understand the value of Christ. So my image of a Christian heart tends to look a lot more like Genesis 30-something, 30 32, I think, where Jacob and God are having it out. And man, it's brutal. And Jacob's like, he won't let go. He's just like, I need a blessing. I want a blessing. And he, it comes in a place of immense fear for him. And he's going back home to face his brother. He thinks he's going to die. And, and eventually, of course, his hip gets out of whack, and he limps the rest of his life. That, to me, is the image of what my Christian walk has felt like. There's a progressive wrestling with God over issues. And, um, and, uh, and, and this idea of, well, what does it mean, well, you are in Christ or your identity in Christ has taken on a lot of wrestling just recently. I'll talk about this very practically. So there, I do have an identity as a physician. I'm an ER doctor. Everybody sort of knows me that way. And, and I am. That's not going to change no matter what I do in my life. But in the United States, we have this idea of what a doctor should look like and what a career for a doctor should look like. And so over the past two years, as I've 
Well, 15 years ago, I got called to ministry. So I've been balancing two lives, ministry, which entails writing, speaking, doing this Bible sort of things. And, and then I've got this other vocation, medicine. And over the last 15 years, God has drawn me closer and closer to my vocation as a, as a Bible teacher. Well, a year ago, I felt like God is like, move. Make, it's time to back out of the ER. There, you know, I've, I've had, luckily, the opportunity to do medicine on, on the phone. I do a lot of telemedicine. But that one decision to resign from a position as it is at the hospital and kind of jump off a ledge of what the expectation of Americans for doctors looks like took so much courage for me. And, 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 and this willingness to say, okay, God, my identity is in you. It's not in my career. It's not in my degree. It's not in my you know, stethoscope around my neck. And I'll still practice medicine, but it's taking on such a different form. But it took this willingness to step out of the boat of saying, God, I want to walk on water towards you. You know, and so that's, it's a lot of fear. And it's a lot of sort of kind of kicking down your fear for yeah. the sake of Christ. What What does it actually mean? Uh, I just want you to kind of uh, think out loud here. When you say... I want to find my identity in you. What does that actually mean? What is the story you're telling yourself, or what is the thing that you're inviting when you say that? I'm inviting to receive every promise that God has made towards me. Those don't come naturally to me. I don't wake up and feel like a conqueror. I feel the guilt of my own sin, whether it's, you know, things that I should, shouldn't see that I'm seeing, things that I do and personally, as a single Christian that I wish I didn't do. You know, things like that that I hate. And so I wake up feeling condemned. And I think being in Christ means taking that promise that God says there's no condemnation if you're in the Spirit and say, okay, that is me today. It's it's feeling like, like, you know, feeling this disappointment in God. And then it really, and I say this, I mean, I'm not meaning to pass over this quickly, because we do, we go into seasons where, we, where we're disappointed in ourselves, yes, but even immensely, we have this huge kind of chip on our shoulder towards God, like, God, you could change it, hasn't, and have not, and kind of going back to saying, okay, but I know Romans 8.28, all these things are going to work together for good somehow, because he is faithful, even when I'm faithful. And so it is so promise-based. I think God is so true to his word, that if you could just stay under these promises, but again, you've got to do the work of doing that. And so speaking out loud to yourself, it's surrounding yourself with people who remind you, hey, you're not just a single Christian. You're a Christian who happens to be single. You're a follower of the, you know, it's that sort of thing. Yeah, and, um, that's good. I think, yeah, it's practical. It's real, you know. So you said, we need to do. you said something uh, just a bit ago that I want to go back to for just a second. You You referenced Jacob's wrestling match with God, and and that you kind of framed your your life in terms of this wrestling match with God, which I think is—I I really resonate with that, and it, 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 it risks um, framing the relationship sort of negatively, and when I hear you say it, I don't think negatively. I think um, very profoundly that what he's after is transformation in me, and I've learned that um, his love for me is not— uh, Namby Pamby. He intends to do something deep in me, and therefore, this wrestling match is an apt description of what happens. But we come to him for healing. Uh, Jacob leaves the encounter wounded. So, uh, talk a little bit about that dynamic. That if 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 that's one w- metaphoric way that you see your life with Jesus, then what's the point of the wounding? 
Well, I think the wounding is there. I mean, I think the wounding is there because we're born in a world that's messed up, right? I don't think God, I mean, God, of course, you can hyper-theologize this whole thing and say, well, he creates calamity for Isaiah and whatnot. But really, at the end of the day, wounding is there because we're all born into hurt, into sin, into, and God saves us from it. But the wrestling, I think, I agree with you. I think it's a beautiful metaphor. And I think, by the way, I think every single man or woman who has been greatly used by God, I think Tozer actually said that, uh, was, was deeply wounded by God uh, at one point or another. I think about Peter. And, and for the uh, same thing, where the, the, the pivotal moment of Jacob's life and the pivotal moment of Peter's life happened out of utter brokenness. And yet such intimacy and such magnitude of a life lived to the fullest with the Lord. And so, you know, you, you know these couples that, like, you just have such a – we watch couples who are married, and some are like, you know, they love each other. Ah, it's all the cutie, and what, but there's no depth. And then there's others who have gone through difficulties, but, man, they've come out of it stronger, and they just can look at each other, and you can just see the closeness. I want that with the Lord. Like, not to, you know, overuse it, you know, but there is a certain sense of, like, there is that sort of closeness with the Lord. And I think most Christians live their life without experiencing that and without fighting for that. And I think the Lord – pleasures in us saying, man, I want more from you. I want, I want, I want to just run into your arms and know you. Like, like, like the invitation in Song of Solomon. I hated that book my whole life. I don't know. I never resonated with it until this year. And in the last few months, this invitation in Song of Solomon, it's really a metaphor of God calling his people, come away with me, my beloved. And I think if, if I could just lean into that more, whatever the cost, it'll be worth it. Yeah, we're, we're attracted to true intimacy in others' relationships. I mean, there, there's something powerful about real intimacy, and I really resonate with what you're saying here about that our own relationship with Jesus. We're not fundamentally attracted to shallow relationships that people have with Jesus. We're, we're drawn almost like magnets to those who have an intimacy with Him, and it almost—I mean, it's, it's not really possible to have intimacy with Jesus— without having gone through wounding and brokenness within the context of that relationship. I've just never met anybody that didn't have significant brokenness as part of their story who is also intimate with Jesus. It just, the two go together. And one of the things you talk about a lot in your ministry is accessing, you know, sort of everyday power in your life from Jesus. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what what does that mean? How, how do you access the power of Jesus in your everyday life? Well, boy, um, you know, it's funny. Where I've been thinking a lot the last couple of weeks. I'm prepping for the fall kind of conference, you know, invitations that I have. And this concept of strength. And everybody right now wants to hear, especially in the context of women who, you know, be strong, get stronger. And I think we have a lot of... I think we're stronger than we think in, in that capacity. I think a lot of people like want to lean into that message, but I think you miss the gospel and the Christ-centered strength that I think most of us really yearn for, and it comes out of brokenness. And uh, so when I think, it's funny, because I think, I, I do think I'm a strong person. I mean, you know, I, it, like people meet me, it's sort of glaring, like she's independent, she's strong, she's sort of outspoken. I'm an ER doctor. That's what I, you know, I hate the fight, basically. I mean, I, I do work so I can convince people, and this is like you know, my persona. But I found true strength is, is, as someone just put that on Facebook, too, it takes more strength to be kind. It's, it takes more strength to face Pilate and the people who are spitting at him and say nothing than to unleash the angels to come and rescue him from the cross. And I think that's Christ-like. That's power. That's strength. And so 
it's inevitable to see that as, as you study the word. So as in my ministry, Living with Power, really is based on this concept of applying biblical truth to everyday life. It's, it's finding hope in the way of Jesus. But what's the way of Jesus? It is the way of yielding. Yielding to who? Yielding to the Spirit of God. I think the strongest person in the room is the one who's most yielded to the Holy Spirit. Oh, I totally, I totally agree with what you just said there. You know, uh, we've been talking about how it's subtly tempting for all of us to gauge our worth and identity by the stuff that happens to us in life, the good and the bad things that happen to us in life. And I thought it'd be interesting as we close out here to, to take a, a look, a quick look here at a strange story about Jesus that is in Luke 13, 1 through 9. So I'm just going to read this little portion, and then, Lena, maybe you and I can uh, take a shot at um, trying to understand what's going on here. But it's in Luke, again, Luke 13, 1 through 9, and here we go. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. So, so Pilate had murdered some Jews who were offering sacrifices at the temple. That's what's happening. That was the top story in the news, essentially. Um, that's what this first sentence is trying to frame. And so Jesus says this, Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee. And, uh, is that why they suffered? And then he answers his own question. Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? So he's referencing another big story that was in the news. 18 people dying when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, and I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. And then he immediately goes into a story. So let's take a look at this story and try to understand why he told this story right after he's covering the two biggest headlines in the news um, and trying to understand those. So then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it, but he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. Well, the gardener answered, uh, Sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. And if we get figs next year, fine. But if not, then you can cut it down. So here we have this like strange... Um, this is just so much like Jesus. He first tries to help his disciples understand, he's kind of pushing back against uh, the conventional wisdom that people who with, uh, that have bad things happen to them, so the circumstances of their life are negative, they indicate something about their identity. So he's trying to push back that just because these people were murdered, just because the Tower of Siloam fell on these people— you assume that there's something about their character, something hidden about them, that is the reason for this punishment, and I'm telling you that's not true. It, uh, these outside circumstances have nothing to do with their interior life or their character, and let me tell you a story. <laughs> and then he tells this strange little parable that we don't often ever hear taught. So I'm just wondering, Lena, just... Uh, at first blush, my question is, why would Jesus tell this parable immediately after explaining these two news events the way he did? What's, what's your thought about that? 
Well, I love the parable for what it's worth. I've actually written about it in the end of my book, Thrive. And, but I haven't thought about the connection in a while. But I, I'll tell you, what, even as you read it, my first thought was, Jesus is such a personal God. I mean, he's God, and he's come to earth, and he's so personal because there's this massive stuff going on. And so I mean, this is so hard not to make, you know, kind of comparisons to what's happening now. Like, there's so much disaster going on outside, and it's so easy to want to focus out there, like what's happening there. And, 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 and very few places in the Gospels does Jesus really address current events. This is probably one of a handful of places. Um, and, and, and yet he brings it back to the main point, which is really the issue of repentance. Like, like yeah, there's a lot of disaster, and he doesn't even focus on the fact, what, was it that they were evil? Was it that they were good? Was it, you know, just a, there's sadness, and maybe there are consequences, maybe not. But he says the issue here is repentance. And now he brings it back to the people of Israel. Of course, the fig tree, uh, I think, was a picture of, of Israel at the time. But he is the vine dresser who just wants to give them one more chance. Like, you know, there's no fruit right now, but listen, let's tend to this. Let's tend to this. Let's give it time. And I think that's the image of Jesus who's so close to us and so patient with us, and we give up on each other when he's like, look, I came for this reason, and I'm going to work with you, and I'm going to bring you to a point of repentance. Like, that's the goodness of repentance, I think. But again, I, I, I think that you probably have more to say on that. Well, I'm just—I I, I think this is such a curious uh, attachment, these two things, and I love what you just said about um, he's, he's addressing kind of the chaos and fear happening in their culture, and we naturally try to resolve the dissonance of why bad things happen to people by trying to make sense of them, because if they don't make sense, then we're really afraid. I mean, if it's all just happenstance, then what kind of security do I really have in the first place? And maybe that's part of what he's trying to get at here, is what what's underlying your, uh, your uh, quick judgments about these people who bad things happen to? Why do you go to that place of judgment so quickly? And it's really because we're afraid that if there's not good cause and effect, then we're not going to have any security. And what he's saying is, in, in a sense, is your security is going to come from somewhere else. Um, mm. it's, it's coming from outside of your circumstances. It's, it's, yeah, bad things can happen to people who um, ha- have—there's no reason— why this bad? That's really the point he's trying to make. There's no reason the tower fell on these particular eighteen people. Mm. He's 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 and then he's sort of broadening this into uh, well, the very thing that you're talking about there at the end, Lena. That that this that that the gardener has a bent toward one more chance, one more mm. chance. Let me pour in to this fig tree that won't grow fruit. Let me give me one more chance. Um, this idea that Jesus is overarching influence in our life, whose bent is always one more chance, a little more fertilizer. I can make this work um, instead of the quick. Yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, we've waited yeah. long enough. Uh, it, you're you're out. Um, this idea that he's not only a pursuer, but patient with our with our growth. This the the thing about these two chunks here is I think the deepest questions are being asked here. What mm. what what is God's attitude towards me, and will I also, if I step out of line, if I don't bear good fruit, is is He going to drop a tower on me? <laughs> if, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's interesting, and just this sort of I know I'll come in here to, towards the end, but you know. Working with Syrian refugees, this is so fascinating because you sort of have this sense, like, it's, it's baffled my mind 
um, lately, like when I think about this year, why were they the people that had this happen? Like of all the countries that could have had the, the exodus of millions of people from their homeland, I mean, they didn't ask for it, and yet this badness happened. And what did they do, you know? And yet working shoulder to shoulder with so many Syrians right now and seeing the movement of God that's happened, I don't think any person who has turned their life to God, to Christ, um, right now, like in Lebanon is the context that I've spent the most time in, would tell you that it was a Like they now view their disaster as a gift because it's allowed them to be in a place where the vine dresser is bringing fruit. So you're seeing fruit out of this disaster, like such a realness to this. And so they're not asking now, why did this happen to us? As, in, in so much as, okay, we hope, you know, we're now praying that Christ is going to turn it around for good, but he already is turning it around for good. And, and it's just moving to see that God would. I don't know, be like that towards us and care for us to this extent that even disasters turn for good in yeah, his hands. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, as we close this off here, I, I think that the thing that's profound to me is that those people locked in the midst of the, this ugly mm-hmm. who are finding beauty um, and intimacy and all of these things we long for sprouting up in the midst of that ugly, they're the only ones who can really truthfully embrace and speak out that beauty. When we try to visit it on them, you know, we say trite things like, you know, well, God's going to make something good happen out of this, mm. but it, it can't come from the outside. Uh, it's, right. the, it's the person themselves who inexplicably, remarkably says, this horrific circumstance I'm in, I have seen beauty um, sprout up in here, that is like a protest of beauty in the world, I think. Uh, and it happens no matter where you find great suffering or trial or challenge, you find this same dynamic in the lives of the people that you encounter. You find beauty there in the midst of that darkness. And it is a way that we, we know about the reality of the heart of Jesus at work in the world, is when we see people who have no reason to worship, worship anyway. So, I love that yeah. that uh, that that little vignette you gave us there. Well, Lena, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Uh, of course, uh, listeners Becky and I will talk about the, some of the some of the themes in this conversation in just a moment. But please be sure to check back on uh, the podcast page and see links to Lena's books and her ministry. So if you'd like uh, to find out more about what she's doing, or maybe even show up to where she's speaking or read one of her books, you'll easily be able to do that. Thank you, Lena, so much. It's been a joy. Thanks, Rick. All right, that was a that was a fascinating conversation with Lena. She is legitimately from Lebanon, so you know she has a thick accent. So I hope I hope you could hear all of what she was talking about. But um, I'm back here with the Becky Nader, and we're going to just talk for a few minutes about sort of the macro idea embedded in in that interview with Lena. We're really talking about how the role of relationships in forming our identity. They're they're like mirrors around us. We can't really escape the forceful impact of the relationships we have around us and how they form us into who we are. And God has made it this so. He's wired us so that we can find our identity outside of ourselves. Only narcissists find their identity inside themselves, and we know we, we probably know a few narcissists today that we don't like the outcome of that. <laughs> and so the idea that we'd be formed by mirrors outside of ourselves is a beautiful thing and a dangerous thing, because if outside forces are, are helping to form who we are, 
then it's super important that those outside forces are forming us into the image of God, not the image of something else. So, so Becky, let's, let's talk a little bit about actually in your life, how have relationships both helped and hinder you as you have discovered your true identity? How have they been a help? How have they been a hinder to you? You know, we, I, I think we know this somewhere deep inside ourselves that really the only opinion that matters in the entire universe is what Jesus thinks. I think we, 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 we intrinsically know that somewhere deep in us, but we still doubt it. Um, and I think sometimes when we hear things from people that, that maybe aren't true about us, but there's some part of us that are, is feels like, wow, they're the only person who is willing to be honest with me. And this is really who I am and I can't see it or other people were too afraid to tell me this. And I think especially when it's a family member or somebody who knows you really well, like they've known you for a long time, we can, t- we can have a tendency to just naturally adopt those things. And I think it's really, really, really important anytime someone tells us something about who we are, that we pause and we, we don't just automatically adopt that um, idea into our hearts and into our minds. Um, And I know for me, I have grown up in a very complicated family and I had a lot, I had quite a few narcissists who raised me or who were around me when I was in my formative years, who told me a lot of things about myself that really hindered my ability for a long time to become the person that I needed to be. But there's something really amazing about being around people who do the opposite of that. When you have somebody that comes into your life and they start to speak truth, it always comes in a place where there's actually like peace that is surrounding um, those things. The, the things that they say aren't hard for you to accept. They're easy for you to adopt into your life and say, yeah, that is who I am. Um, and they also bring a lot of strength um, and they bring courage. I think that when you hear truth about yourself that comes from a place where someone is is hearing from the spirit, that you start to feel more courage and you start to be more bold in the way that you act. And I think that Lena is a great example of somebody who has been named by Jesus, who knows who she is without all the labels. And it's caused a boldness in her life to really just live out who Jesus wants her to be pretty radical ways. Yeah, Just listening to you, it's something that occurred to me here that in general, I, I think this is generally true in its specifics. The specific is we'll either hear forming statements about ourselves that agree with the enemy of God or agree with the Spirit of it's God. A great way to see it. One of those two things is what that feedback is going to be. And uh, discernment means, how do I understand somebody's reflection of me when it is reflecting the Spirit of God's intimate view of our own heart, or when it's reflecting the enemy of God's view? So my wife and I have many conversations about this on our two-mile walks around our neighborhood. We have a lot of conversations about identity and the mirrors that surround us and what is true and is what, what is not true. And one thing that's very important is to be—you uh, hinted at this, Becky—is to be very active in how you engage reflective inputs into your life. Is that a, in agreement with the Spirit of God, or is it more in agreement with the enemy of God right now? And if it is in agreement with the enemy of God, 
you don't play around with that. Mm-mm. You stand and say, I stand against that. I bring the authority of Jesus into this. I won't accept any message that is in agreement with the enemy of God into my life. You don't just passively try to argue it out. You don't try to kind of think of the pros and cons with that. When you've discerned that this is a a statement that's in agreement with the enemy of God, its intention is to destroy you. you. You cannot stand and just simply let it play around in your soul. You have to stand against it in a sort of an active way. One of the themes that Jesus has really been working with me on this year is, has been this um, kind of theme called "Don't be a doormat," <laughs> um, and and part of that is that I have a tendency to just be the a peacekeeper in my family. I just want to um, keep the peace, and I, I there's varying levels of maturity and different things that have happened, and so sometimes when somebody will say something to me that's you know. I know it's not true, and I just let it roll off my back. And and to for me, I thought that that was being the bigger person and doing the right thing. But what I was allowing in my life with my closest relationships was I was basically being a doormat, and I was allowing them to say things that were untrue or that were hurtful or that were mean-spirited and then just let them roll right off of me. So I started I, – I wasn't – I wouldn't get – I don't get angry or, like, argue. I just say – that's not true. Um, I just started saying that's not true. Um, that's not true about me. And I'm sorry that that's how you feel, but that's not true. And it's been really, really incredible for me to stand up for myself. But more than that, I think what I'm doing is I'm standing up for what is true about me and what Jesus says is true about me and what is false. And here's the beauty of this. The, the way that we know what is true about us is the, is the promise Jesus has given us that the Spirit, His own Spirit, lives in us. So I mentioned in our last podcast that my new name for the Holy Spirit is the Invisible Rabbi, because He's inside us teaching us everything we need to know about the heart of Jesus, but also simultaneously reflecting Jesus's perspective on us. So as we hear and experience reflections in our life, we have the Spirit, the invisible rabbi, inside us who, who will either agree or disagree with those statements. So when you say, I'm standing up for yourself, I think if you drill down into that cave, what's really happening is you're agreeing with the Spirit about a truth about yourself, and you're standing for that truth yep. when you say, I'm standing for myself. And this makes it crucial that we have an ongoing, intimate relationship with the Spirit in us, that we are yielding to the Spirit, that this is not a bizarro thing in an everyday way, that we are aware of the Spirit's influence in our life. It it needs to become an everyday, every moment thing more and more as we lean into this, so that we know the difference between things that are true and not true about who we are, because in the end, the enemy targets our identity primarily to destroy because if he can taint or poison our identity, he's got us. We will become not only destroyed people, but we will destroy others as our identity is marred and poisoned. So the battle really is over our identity. It's, it's on us to pay better attention to the messages that we're getting around our identity in life. Any last thing you want to 
say about that before we, uh, you have, I know you have something you want. I can jump right in. Okay. Um, so, you know, the new season is uh, coming. Uh, you know, the, the days are starting to get shorter. Um, the light isn't staying around as long. Um, lots of kids are going back to school. My Facebook is full of back to school pictures. Um, and so with a new season, there's always a chance, just like with New Year's, to kind of reevaluate our priorities. And I was, I had this awesome chance to go um, spend some time with my aunt and some of her friends. And they were sitting around talking about how they became Christians and just kind of the process of how that happened. And one of them was talking about how, well, I would go, you know, my husband and I just started going to church every week and then we would hear something in the message and then we would do it. And, you know, slowly over the years, more and more of those kind of habits started building into our life. And then it just became like an everyday thing. You know, sometimes when you are stuck in a pattern or a rut or you feel like, oh, I just wish that I could, you know, overcome some challenges in my life or I'm not making enough time for Jesus. We just need some kind of small ways to start changing the way that we do things. So we created this um, free download. It's called How to Change the Way You Plan Your Day and Why You Want to. It's a free printable handbook for pursuing a Jesus-centered routine. Um, It's it's beautiful. Um, it's about 30 pages. Our friend Steph wrote it. Um, but it's all based on our philosophy of how to live a Jesus centered life. There's worksheets for kind of identifying what things are bringing joy in your life and what things are not bringing joy in your life. There's goal setting grids, um, for kind of how, what's your spiritual goal, what's your learning goal, what's your physical goal, what's your social goal. Um, and by social, we mean relationships, There's a worksheet for planning for rest. So there's, you list all of your chores that you normally do on the weekends and you reschedule them into the week so that you can take an entire day off um, just to spend with family, friends, and Jesus and have a Sabbath. Um, And there's much, much more. There's also actually an entire full month sample of the new Jesus Centered Planner, which doesn't actually start until 2018. So you can actually use a full month of the new Jesus Centered Planner uh, by printing this out. So we will have a link in the profile, or if you're listening on iTunes or Google Play, click on your description and the link will show there. But we really want to encourage you to start a new routine with Jesus this changing of season and join us on this challenge. And why do we do all these things? Because We love Jesus, and we can't stop paying ridiculous attention to him. Because we are adopted into his family, we've adopted his family's mission statement, which is to bring freedom to captives. We are driven to try to help captive people find freedom, and that's why we create stuff like this, and that's why I write the books I do, and it's all driven by a desire, a Jesus-centered desire, to participate in freeing captives. That's why we do it. So please do check that out. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Remember that you can find out more information about all the stuff that we talked about here today, but in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com website. You can find our podcast section, and you're looking for Season 2, Episode 33 with this one. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. Becky and I will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.